Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk with people who are living lives of purpose and doing amazing things that make a positive impact in our world. We take time to listen to them as they reflect on their life journeys and what has shaped them into who they are today and what motivates them to be involved in what they do. Well, kia ora, everyone. Welcome along to Seeds Podcast. I'm really glad you could join me as we're going to be speaking with Mitchell Gingrich, who's an expert on autonomous vehicles. And so we have a really fascinating conversation about what they are and what the future may hold. We actually co-wrote a paper together called The Driverless Revolution, What Next? And there's a link to that in the show notes. So be sure to check that out if this is of interest. It's a really cool overview of some of the key points that we talk about in this interview. But it goes into a lot more depth as well in terms of what the regulations might be needed to change the legal environment for autonomous vehicles to become more accepted. And don't forget, over the holiday break, if you're going road tripping, I'm sure there's some episodes that you haven't listened to yet of Seeds. And over the break, if you hear of people who are looking for a podcast, then I'm sure they'd like to hear about Seeds. Now let's get straight into this interview. All right, so it's a real pleasure to welcome Mitchell Gingrich, who's the president and lead consultant at Autonomous Consulting. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Stephen. I really appreciate the opportunity to be here with you and your audience. And the fun thing is that we wrote a paper together, and it's now almost exactly a year ago, isn't it? I was just reflecting and thinking, um, and it was all about autonomous driving and the future. And what Mm -hmm. I'd love to do in this podcast is really delve into that topic and talk about what you're doing in that area. Um, But before we do that, I always like to go back in time and find out about the guest and where they're from. So in your case, when you were, say, four or five years old, what part of the world were you living in, and what was it like? Four or five years old, I'm in uh, northwestern Ohio, and growing up on the family farm, Mm -hmm. which still is in the family. It'd be three generations now. Wow. Uh, But also, in that part of the world... Uh, was the first man to walk on the moon, Neil Armstrong. He's from the same part of Ohio. He's a lot older than I am, of course. (laughs) But I can remember fondly um, those memories of um, the lunar landing, uh, watching that with my dad and my mom on the old black and white television back in the day. Right. So was that some of your first memories then? Well, I have earlier memories than that. some of my earliest, one of my earliest memories is, um, I don't want to say the year, but there were famous Palm Sunday tornadoes that hit that part of uh, Indiana and Ohio. Hmm. And uh, it was a very warm day, much like the one we're enjoying today, but it brought some terrible thunderstorms and then tornadoes and hmm. destroyed um, parts of the farm. And uh, we used to have horses and it killed all but one of the horses that day. Wow. So that's a major storm. (laughs) A major storm, and also uh, we lost a family member that day. Wow. So, yeah, it was, I was very young. Right. Yeah, so you asked four or five, so that that takes us us back to those days. Yeah. And what do you remember of the lunar landing? Like, do you remember it building up and it's going to be broadcast and getting excited about that? I remember a lot about it, the build-up. And uh, some of the build-up is especially... um, pertinent to me because both my parents were science teachers. So that, um, that helped add to the buildup. My dad just loved science and um, every now and then, not during those, those early years leading up to the lunar landing, but in subsequent years, he would have the privilege of bringing the telescope home from the, the high school where he taught. And uh, I can remember just looking at the heavens along with him and just marveling at what's out there and mm. it's, I think that's just part of what we should do is marvel 
Mm. And uh, that's part of what I think a lot of people uh, do with respect to autonomy is they marvel at what is this thing? Mm. Yeah. How are these things able to, to act in a way that uh, they can be safe and be reliable? Mm. And just going back to the landing, mm-hmm. the lunar landing and things like, describe that moment when you saw people on the moon. <laughs> Obviously, it's just an, one of those awe-inspiring moments. It's just like, how can that be? You have to remember, in those days, living in America, you would also see on the nightly news the soldier death toll, the daily death toll of the soldiers in Vietnam. So it was kind of like it was Dickensian. It's the best of times. It was the worst of times mm. because there was so much strife. Uh, I was too young to appreciate why people would would riot and protest against the war. I didn't quite understand that. But seeing uh, Neil Armstrong walk on the moon is just Mm. like the possibilities. Mm. It just that's what brings that's what I recall. Just what what else can we do when we pull together? Mm. And you mentioned your parents were science teachers and this event clearly had an influence. Does that mean that you enjoyed science growing up or what was it that I absolutely enjoyed science growing up one of the things I thought I would do is uh, go on to medical school but uh, I didn't do that Um, going into uh, university days for whatever reason organic chemistry and I didn't get along (laughs) and uh, a, uh, a good friend of mine at university in those days had always planned to go to law school and he encouraged me to to do it as well and I set my sights on it around those in those early college years and went on to graduate from the University of Akron then the University of Akron School of Law uh, started practicing at a, at a sizable firm and then had an aha moment that you know if I really want to control my destiny I need to go out and get clients and I started my own firm and then grew that firm into a, a multi-lawyer multi-disciplined uh, practice and then, uh, and so just take us back. Sorry, um, no, that's fine. <laughs> but we're rushing through. Just you know that <laughs> becoming a lawyer, like it, you, you, you'd had the science background, and and that's what had appealed. It sounds like growing up, but then law emerged. <laughs> Was that a moment that you thought, yes, I'm going to give this a go, or yeah, how did that come about? Because as was, you know, I'm a lawyer myself, yeah, so I'm always yeah. interested to hear. Uh, part of it was yes, give it a go, but it. I just I decided that. I would focus on doing that. And in doing that, and then in practicing law, I made it my own. So everything is a mixture of science and art. So in law, the science part, that's the, that's the hard parts, the, the, the tangible bits. Mm-hmm. The statute says, the case precedent says, the judge says, you know, when you're dealing with the judge and the, the law of the case. So that's the, that's the science part. But the art is dealing with people, networking, connecting, getting good results with others, dealing with opposing counsel, some of the hardest people in the world to, with whom to deal. Mm. <laughs> so I enjoyed those parts. And I think one of the greatest compliments I got in in my law career is when uh, uh, one of my law partners who went on to become a judge said, Mitch, I learned so much from you. And I didn't know I was teaching him, mm. but he was paying attention. Mm. Um, so those are the, 
the moments that I reflect on in the practice, besides helping the clients and helping them to advance their businesses, uh, helping them with an, any number of things. In fact, I, I used to do a number of the same things that you do currently, Stephen, except mm. I did those over in the States. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I like the way you describe that, because I think you're right. In the law, there are sort of different... People think it's maybe just about drafting documents, but there's so much involved, isn't there, in terms of what does the client want? What do they need? Okay, how do we chart a course exactly. to head in that direction? In many ways, we are complex problem solvers mm. when we practice law. But those analytical skills carry over well into other parts of our, of our lives and other, into other sectors. Mm. Uh, in business, you're solving complex problems. But more often than not, you're solving some of those complexities are psychological issues. And how do I get these folks to, to play nice, so to speak? How do you encourage your team? How do you lead your team? Just so many different ways to do that. Mm. Um, and so for me, I thoroughly enjoyed the practice of law. Mm. And, and the, oppor the opportunity to come to New Zealand is the only reason I would leave it. Right. Yeah, well, that was what I was going <laughs> to ask. So where were you practicing all where you were from? Like, Correct. Yeah. I was practicing law in Akron, Ohio. Mm -hmm. um, so it used to be known as the rubber capital of the world. Mm -hmm. So these days for basketball fans, it's probably known as the home of LeBron James. Right? Exactly. And, <laughs> and from where my office was in downtown Akron, I could look out my window and see his high school. Oh, okay. Right. So yeah, yeah, I had the privilege, like many people in that part of the world, to watch him grow up and become a man, become the legend that he has, has grown to become. Mm. And he's still out there doing it. Yeah, he's amazing. A, he's a marvel. He really yeah. is. Yeah. And so how long did you end up practicing law for there then? Uh, about 22 years. Okay. We're here in New Zealand. How did that get on your radar? <laughs> New Zealand got on the radar because uh, went on a Colorado vacation. Mm -hmm. So during a Colorado vacation, we had an opportunity to go to the Navigator headquarters. So Navigators is a uh, worldwide Christian organization. It's this beautiful uh, mansion in the, right next to the Garden of the Gods in Colorado Springs. But they have teas and different events going on. And we thought, oh, we'll include this in our itinerary. Mm -hmm. And in planning and preparing the trip, it turned into, well, do you have an interest in maybe going overseas in, in doing some work with international students because we had done some work with international students at our home church in in Akron, Ohio. And we thought, well, we don't know, but we'll see. And they said, well, we don't know about you because we usually send university students, but there's a strong interest, so we'll stay in touch. We stayed in touch. And so our first trip to New Zealand came through a, a six-week tour of New Zealand with some university students, and that was in 2005. Hmm. We came again in 2006 because the local organization, International Student Ministries of New Zealand, invited us to come back. Hmm. We came again in 2007 and uh, thought and, and prayed and, and examined how could we possibly do something new in New Zealand. The other part of me was, how could I not go on this adventure? Hmm. How can I come to my the end of my years and say oh I could have been in New Zealand <laughs> and I just I didn't want to have that regret mm. I didn't want to leave my law practice but it just was 
something that I just couldn't, excuse the double negative, couldn't not do. Mm-hmm. It just was too important to do. Mm. And what had you known about New Zealand before you came the first time? Like, uh, just obviously, Lord of the Rings. My daughter absolutely adores the books. Mm-hmm. I think she has read The Two Towers ten times. Mm-hmm. So knew about it through those con- that connection, mm-hmm. the movies, etc. Um, but also, um, at the age of 12, our daughter did um, a um, people-to-people student ambassador trip. It's young students. She was 12 years old. It was a chaperone trip uh, with other parents. We did not go, but it was to Australia. And she was just adamant that she was going to go on another one of these trips to New Zealand because she was just in love with this part of the world. Well, instead of going to New Zealand that next year, that's when we went to Colorado, which Mm -hmm. then ends up going to New Zealand. So the subtext of the story is what our daughter wants, our daughter ends up getting. Right. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. And and by the way, she ended up attending the University of Canterbury, and uh, she married her uh, university sweetheart. And uh, so that was in 2018. So Right. And she she works here, here and he's he's an engineer here, so... She's our only one, so there's no other place in the world to be at this stage either. Right. Oh, that's really cool. So uh, the reason that we originally connected, I think, was uh, a shared background in terms of America and things, but also it was about autonomous vehicles. So that's right. What happened? Because I know you had gone back to the states for a while. Um, yeah. What What was that about, and and what were you doing there? We lived and worked here, primarily working with international students at University of Canterbury and at Lincoln University. Loved it. Had tremendous connections with a, a lot of good people. And uh, just felt some, some, I don't know, some tweaks, despite how clear it was that we should be here mm-hmm. uh, in, those, in the earlier part of our story. Uh, just felt that maybe it would, be, it would be good to return to the States, but not to Ohio, but to Phoenix, Arizona, because... As it turns out, that's the western hub of my wife's family. She has two sisters that live there, and the elder sister has five daughters, and most of them were living there and mm-hmm. married and having kids of their own. And, and so it was, it was uh, like I said, the, the western hub of, mm-hmm. of her family, and we thought it would be a, a, a good opportunity to, to, to start life there after our time in New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And... That was a decision that we have come to rue, R-U-E, rue, mm-hmm. <laughs> not like a kangaroo, uh, because the, what we expected to happen while we were in Arizona, none of it happened. Mm-hmm. And um, as it turns out, I ended up um, uh, actually driving for Uber because I, I needed something else to do. And uh, through doing that, Uber ATG, Uber Advanced Technology Group, uh, was looking for people to uh, incorporate into their uh, development and deployment of autonomous vehicles. And mm. they connected with me because of that already, uh, that existing connection. And so from there, uh, I got very involved in, in developing, deploying uh, the autonomous vehicles with the Uber Advanced Technology Group in Phoenix. And Phoenix uh, remains a, a hotbed of testing uh, for autonomous vehicles. Waymo, which is a subsidiary of Alphabet, most people know it as Google, 
Uh, they've been operating there from about the same time frame, about 2016, 17. Mm-hmm. Uh, by the way, I worked with Uber ATG 2017 through 2018. Mm-hmm. Now you might be thinking, okay, why isn't he still working there? Well, there's a, a significant event that took place in the autonomous vehicle sector in March 18, 2018. And just as you asked me about the lunar landing and remembering that, well, I remember that day pretty well too, but mm. for different reasons. Mm-hmm. So I remember waking up early and getting a text from one of my, my work peers. And he said, we had an accident last night. Pedestrian was killed. Oh no. And then there is shutdown of the entire operation, a reexamination. And two months after the accident, the Uber uh, ATG decided to shut down the whole operation. So 300 people were made redundant. They treated us well, don't get me wrong, but there was no more developing those vehicles. Mm-hmm. And uh, so because my wife and I enjoy permanent residency, we're like, I think it's time to come back to New Zealand. Mm-hmm. And in coming back to New Zealand, it was different in terms of our first opportunity in, t- in 2010. There was a distinct um, job, distinct role for me to play. Coming back in 2018, the main role was just being a father to our daughter and making sure that the wedding went off quite well, go- went off well, and, and it did. Uh, and that was October 2018. And so for me, being here, what role would I want to undertake? And uh, that's where the idea of autonomous consulting was birthed. Mm -hmm. I thought, I have this legal background. I have uh, this autonomous vehicle background. I am thoroughly convinced that the future will be autonomous, Mm -hmm. whether it's on the public roads or in the skies or in the seas. We will be utilizing autonomous technology to transport our our people, to transport our goods. Mm. And I want to be part of that because this is something that excites me. It's something that I've got a tremendous introduction to through Uber Advanced Technology Group. And uh, so I started doing that. Uh, You and I met. and um, Yeah, I think it was about a year and a bit ago, and we sat and had a coffee. And then I think I said, why don't we do a white paper together, right? Exactly. And then over a series of weeks, it didn't take very long, did it? We just sort of pulled it together. What we'll do in the show notes is put a link to the paper as well if people are interested. It's called The Driverless Revolution, right? Exactly. What next? Yeah, yeah, what next? (laughs) So just talk us through, because some people listening will have heard about autonomous vehicles, but maybe wouldn't, well, obviously wouldn't be in that area the way that you've been involved. Like, what are we, what are we actually talking about when you're talking about autonomous vehicles? Like, that's, that's tremendously open. Uh, I don't know if you have enough tape for this. (laughs) I'll, I'll try to keep it uh, brief. So from an, from a transport perspective, and we, th- we touched on this in our paper, that the, the idea of something moving through space on its own is as old as da Vinci. Mm. 
So back in 1478, da Vinci had a self-propelled cart. He designed it. He never built it, as far as we know. But others have taken his designs and constructed it. And it basically worked like a clock. It had gears and springs, etc., in it to uh, basically operate on its own. It wouldn't be able to see a, a pedestrian or a dog walking across its path. That's kind of the magic that we have today with uh, computer vision, uh, machine learning, neural networks. All the, the computers that we have today are facilitating a whole revolution in, in how we move ourselves and how we move freight and goods, mm -hmm. products. So part of what's driving that is there are a number of factors. One is safety. Um, it's, if you look at stats from the U.S., you're looking at 30,000, 35,000 deaths annually from transportation accidents mm. on the roads. That's just automobiles, trucks, etc. on the roads. Mm. That's too much of a loss. How can we build safety better into our transport system? And we turn to our best friend, technology. At least in our modern day, we think it's our best friend. Although mm. if you watch The Social Dilemma, you may not think so. Mm. But that's another podcast for someone else. Mm. So with respect to autonomy, we're, we're looking to create safety. And as I mentioned, with uh, my experience at Uber Advanced Technology Group, we had an oops. And so safety wasn't quite what we thought. We, we, autonomy didn't quite produce produce on its promise of safety in that context. But that is a case study for another podcast, perhaps. Mm. So the point is that you can, like, we've got, I'm looking out, there's a car park full of cars here, and they've all got wheels, but they all have a human moving, you know, deciding how to steer and things. And what you're talking about is at one point in the future that you would get into the car on the passenger side and you would input where you want to go and the car would start and it would drive you there. Exactly. And it's not just the car. We're not just talking about, uh, you know, moving you from Rolleston to Rickerton, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking about moving freight all the way across the oceans. Um, these things are being done currently. They're being tested currently. We're talking about how many of us have flown on a commercial airliner. We hear the term autopilot. What do you think that is? Mm. That's the plane being controlled by computers, by algorithms, by the technology to fly. We have a pilot and a co-pilot there to deal with edge cases. And that's where we come into... Um, so what you're saying is it's kind of already there in exactly. many ways. It's just now, in, in some ways, changing public perception and having the infrastructure that makes it more possible. Exactly. So safety is, the, is one of the big ideas, as I've mentioned before. Mm -hmm. One of the reasons for that is the human driver. 90-odd percent, I think it's 93 to 94 percent of all those accidents that we have as human beings are caused by human error. Now, I don't know what the exact percentage is. I didn't come prepared with this stat. But by and large, most of us are distracted. We're looking at that smartphone. We're fiddling with the radio. Uh, we dropped something between our lap or under the seat. 
Uh, and so we aren't paying attention. We think we are, but we really aren't. And so the promise of autonomy is, go ahead and be distracted, Stephen. We'll take care of the driving. Just like you can be distracted all you want on an airplane or on a bus or on the ferry across the Cook Strait. Mm -hmm. You can be distracted with your phone all you want. You can have a nap. Go for it. That's kind of what autonomy seems to be promising, but we're in this strange interim period. So part of what we have to understand is there are different levels of autonomy. So there's a standard, there's many different standards makers out there. And the one I'm, I will refer to is the SAE, Society of Automotive Engineers. And they have a, a tiered system, different levels for autonomy. So when your listeners hear an autonomous vehicle, they're thinking of what the SAE calls level five. So a level five autonomous vehicle has no steering wheel and no pedals, no human machine interface. We don't have any vehicles like that. Mm. No one's producing those. You have a few examples, for example, Omeo, it's spelled O-H-M-I-O, that's a local New Zealand company. They have these little low speed shuttles operating Christchurch Airport, and I think they're working up in Auckland. If you tr remember travel you know, before COVID, <laughs> you may have been at some airports around the world where they have some of these low-speed shuttles. Those are the type of level five fully autonomous vehicles that, that are out there, but they are low speed. They won't go much more than 25 kilometers an hour. Mm -hmm. So part of what we have to do is educate the public about what is autonomy. Now, many of your listeners may own a very recent automobile, something made in the last five years or so. Many of those cars will have what we call ADAS, A-D-A-S features. So that's advanced driver assist systems. So one may be uh, lane keep assist. Another may be automatic, automatic emergency braking. Many of us have been using cruise control for a long time. But the cruise control in the modern vehicles is adaptive. A car pulls in front while you're on the motorway, you're going 100K, that car's going 90K, the car will automatically slow down and keep the proper distance. These are types of autonomous features, but they, are, they do not represent autonomy. So they, these are features building up to a level five. So those kinds of features, if they come in a complete package, might they would approximate SAE level two. Manufacturers such as Audi, Honda, Mercedes, Cadillac, they are looking to develop level three vehicles. So that means you can literally take your hands off the wheel and within the operational design domain of that vehicle, that means within the certain limited circumstances, within that geofenced area perhaps, that vehicle will operate as designed. And you can take your hands off and maybe not pay that much attention. The challenge with these systems where we're at in the interim, these ADAS systems, is <clears throat> the human machine interface. I still have to pay attention. I want to be distracted because that's my 
bent as a human being. I'd rather look at my smartphone and watch some silly TikTok video. But I have to pay attention to the road. Mm -hmm. So in the current climate, right now we have these ADAS systems. Those systems are expecting me to pay more attention to the road and to the robot. So now my attention is all over the place. It's quite diverted. I'm paying attention to the robot. It's taking over the driving function. I'm paying attention to the road in case the robot misses something. And then I'm you know, maybe selecting a playlist from Spotify. That's not a recipe for safety. And that's part of our challenge. Another part of the challenge with respect to the ADA systems is, well, what happens every now and then? You have a little fender bender, right, Stephen? Mm -hmm. Or your windscreen needs replaced. Most of the ADAS sensors live right up where your rearview mirror is, up in that windscreen. If you don't get the proper windscreen installed, the sensors may not work appropriately. If they aren't recalibrated appropriately, then they may not work appropriately. And you'll have a false sense of safety and security. And so then the, that begs another question. Who's paying for that recalibration? Is your insurer? Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Depends. What boxes did you tick when you were selecting your coverage? Mm. It's interesting to think about, isn't it? Because I'm just imagining the future and decades from now, maybe someone will listen to this podcast and, you know, it's 2075 or something and they'll hear us talking and it'll be kind of like the way people would have seen the first vehicles, you know, a hundred years ago. People would have been shocked to see a Model T Ford sort of coming down the road, no horses involved, just mm -hmm. it's driving. And in a way, like, I'm just thinking of the vision that we're talking about, like what might the future hold? Can you sort of cast the vision of what that might be? Like, do you think at some point I won't own a vehicle, I'll walk out of my office here, I'll have called a vehicle on the app, I'll sit in the vehicle, it will drive me to a place, drop me off, and then it will go pick somebody else up. Like, in my mind, that it would be a lot more efficient use of resources rather than all of us owning vehicles, you know, like having some sort of shared scheme where mm -hmm. you can just jump in and, and go on. Yeah. Stephen, you're already envisioning the future. I mentioned safety is one of the rationales for the advent of autonomy. Another rationale is resources. Ride sharing, car sharing, all those kinds of um, technologies, ideas, mm -hmm. came to the fore because, wait a minute, I have a personal vehicle, but 90% of the time it sits doing nothing. It's a resource, it's in, not even an asset, it's a depreciating asset, and I have to pay mm -hmm. financing on it, I have to pay for parking on it, I have to pay insurance on it, I have to pay uh, road user charges, maintenance, WAFs, on and on and on. The list is longer than my arm when it comes to expenses related to owning a personal vehicle. But we all just say nod and tick the box, just like we're signing off on, on, on installing the latest app on our phone. We just tick, sure, yeah, you can have access to everything. I don't care. I just want the app. Mm. And that's kind of how we are with the personal vehicle. I just want the car. Mm. You know, there's something deeply intangible about oh, I got freedom isn't that what we felt when we were teenagers and we were driving the car right mm -hmm. well we that persists even later in life mm -hmm. and it's interesting just sorry to interrupt but no the, the resources point 
if you look at the downtown areas, like the prime real estate often is dedicated to car parking. Oh, yeah. And, you oh, know, yeah. like even here in Christchurch, like it's kind of been rebuilt after the earthquakes. But as you drive along, there's another Wilson car park. There's another place <laughs> for parking, um, which maybe you wouldn't need as much of if you, you, you had some you, other you're, systems. You're, you're on to it. So um, I'll, fi- I'll find the... I'll give you a link later to this article to which I'm referring. I don't have it um, ready to cite. But there is an architect in the U.S. who put out uh, an article that, and he said, imagine with me just Manhattan, not all of New York City, just Manhattan, car-free. And it would clear 60% of the area. Imagine what you could do with 60% more area mm. in an incredibly densely populated area like Manhattan. Mm. It, it was fascinating, too, in that article, Stephen, that there was a picture of Central Park Avenue when it was first, invi- first created. It was for walking. But with the advent of the personal car, that was, go- that was cast aside so that we can put cars down that. And the using autonomy is not just about saving resource, saving lives, and saving resources. It it's also about saving the climate. If we have fewer personal cars, even if these are all electric vehicles, if we all have electric vehicles, if all five million, or maybe not quite five million people, own cars in New Zealand, but let's just use the example: if five million people in New Zealand overnight bought an electric vehicle, we really aren't saving the planet as much as we think we are. If we only had maybe a million fleet vehicles, or even fewer than that, maybe a few hundred thousand fleet vehicles that could safely transport people, and everyone was content with that, what kind of a climate impact do we make? Then what do we do as individuals with the money that we're saving on our transport? that monthly bill or that annual bill, what do we do? And here's another bigger question. If we're safer, what happens to the panel beaters? What happens to the insurance industry? What happens to all these other things? Because this will be a cascading effect Mm -hmm. in how we live. Imagine inside the four avenues here in Christchurch, that was the operational design domain of autonomous vehicles. You just had autonomous vehicles operating inside those four avenues. It would be similar to what the architect envisioned for Manhattan. All of a sudden, all this space. Would people be more inclined to live in the central city? Would they be more inclined to buy into the 15, 20-minute city kind of life where the idea is everything is accessible to me within 15 or 20 minutes? It's walkable, or I can get a scooter, I can get an e-bike. You know, that whole idea is encompassed in something called MAS, Mobility as a Service, M-A-A-S. And that's something that is going to, is, is, it exists today. It's just putting together all those little pieces so mm-hmm. that, you know, if I live in one part of town, how do I get to the airport without using a personal vehicle? ride my bicycle to the bus station and take the bus out to the airport? Or do I take a scooter? Or do I park at the perimeter of 
of the CBD and take a scooter into my work that's in the central city. Um, if I live in Rolleston, how do I get to how do I get to the central city? Is there light rail? You know, am I taking you know an autonomous bus that work that goes between, mm-hmm. or do we use an autonomous electric flying plane like Whisk Arrow is is working on here in Canterbury? Mm-hmm. There are myriad options for us, but that future that autonomy can offer to us promises safety, maybe some more money in your individual pocket. And it also means a lot of opportunities for folks to retrain, to figure out how can we contribute to our communities in new and better ways. How can we maybe even have maybe more green space, maybe gardens even in the central city? Mm. There are a lot of possibilities. And I think autonomy has a tremendous impact on urban planning. Mm. Well, that's the fascinating thing. I think if you could get the mindset shift, you know, that this is my car moving away from that mentality, there would be a huge range of flow on impacts. And you've just touched on many of them, but there would be a lot more as well, wouldn't there, in terms of road design and, you know, how, yeah, how people get from A to B. It might just be a, a real fundamental shift. Well, another fundamental shift would not only, I mentioned MOS, that's mobility as a service, that's, that's the idea of moving people. Mm. But there's another concept called FOSS, freight as a service. And so uh, an, a simple example would be what Amazon proposed a few years ago. They were going to use a drone to deliver packages. They mm-hmm. even had Jeremy Clarkson in, a, in an advert describing how it would work. Well, they didn't quite implement that, but there is a small company in the States called Nuro, N-U-R-O, and they have the only approval, the exception from, um, from the Department of Transportation in the U.S. to operate an autonomous vehicle, but it just delivers goods. Hmm. So it's, it's a small, I mean, we're here at a conference table that's ha- about half the size of this conference table. Hmm. So it might be at most uh, two and a half meters long and maybe a meter and a half tall. Mm-hmm. And it looks like, I don't know, an oversized Roomba. Mm-hmm. But it can deliver groceries, pharmaceuticals, etc. And uh, it's kind of like the Amazon locker where you know, if you have goods delivered, Amazon delivers something to an Amazon locker, and then you go, you have your key combination, you get your goods, so that Amazon's not going throughout the entire neighborhood. That's mm. part of the idea that the Amazon locker has. It's something they use in the States. Mm. It's not ubiquitous, but they do have that in places. And so you look at a company like Amazon, where they've recently acquired Zooks, which is a, that's Z-O-O-X, which is an autonomous vehicle developer. Uh, they just, I just saw today, uh, they put out a promotional video of where they're ready to develop a fleet of robo-taxis. And when you have Jeff Bezos' money, you can be sure that they're going to be ready, willing, and able to put out a fleet of these robo-taxis mm. uh, because they have a tremendous experience in delivering product and delivering goods. Mm. And they are looking at doing the same thing with humans. Yeah. 
Well, what we'll do is in the show notes, if you send me any links to things that look interesting, um, we'll drop them in because then people can click through and they can find more. Um, and I know you've got a website as well, so we'll put that in mm-hmm. and people can kind of keep up to speed with the blog and things because I think what you're doing as autonomous consulting is out there actually helping people imagine the future and what the implications will be across, you know, either from government perspective or from private sector, right. you know. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll put some information in the show notes. But it's a fascinating area because I, I just have a feeling that people will listen to this decades from now <laughs> and they'll look back and probably laughing at us in some ways because, of course, we can't imagine the future. But wouldn't it be nice if instead of looking out at this car park that I'm looking at now, which has, like, 25 cars, if instead, you know, what if that was some type of uh, um, communal garden or something, you know, like instead of devoting, you know, pave paradise and put up a parking lot, (laughs) what if we changed the mentality and the approach? Mm. I I think that's part of the magic of what we can do when we imagine the future. I mean, think of what JFK said so many years ago, Mm -hmm. um, you know, at the end of a decade, we're going to put a man on the moon. Mm. That is a real moonshot. Mm. And for many folks, the, the idea of autonomous vehicles is a moonshot. But when we put our minds together, when we find the means by which we can cooperate, it's amazing what we can do. I mean, mm. 2020, I think, hopefully has taught us that with respect to the advent of these vaccines. Mm. So the vaccines as I understand it, are, for, are being administered for the very first time in the U.S. They've already been administered in the U.K. Look what, look what we've done in the midst of a pandemic. If we take the time to be less divisive, to be a little more understanding that even though I disagree with this person, they are pretty competent. Mm-hmm. They do know what they're doing. I may not like what they're doing, but they do know what they're doing. Can we find a way to move forward in this space? And I think part of the challenge is us just psychologically, emotionally understanding that my freedom is not challenged by not having a personal vehicle. That I have just as much freedom because I have this thing called a smartphone. Mm -hmm. I have the ability to to have a vehicle at my beck and call. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not every day I need to drive to Nelson or to the West Coast. I might need a different vehicle for those purposes. Mm But for most days, going to school, going to work, going to the shops, I'm not traveling that many Ks. I'm really not. Yeah. And we can, we can do a lot to reduce our carbon footprint by having fewer cars. We don't, not making them, you know, not, re, not doing all these things that we're doing. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many challenges. And I think as we put, put out in our paper a year ago, Stephen, New Zealand can lead. Mm. New Zealand has led in so many ways in the past. And this is, in my opinion, another way for, to New, for New Zealand to show that this is the way. Mm. Yeah, that's really good. And I like the way you talked again about the moon landing. You know, like that in your childhood, that was like an aspirational, could we get there? And it was possible. And in a way, what we're talking about now, all this technology does exist of course, it needs more refining and mm-hmm. new ways of doing things, but it is actually possible. So um, we kind of have to have that moonshot vision of what the future may hold, right, decades from now, and then how do we build to it? 
And so what we'll do is put in the show notes links to all these things. Um, but yeah, I just want to say thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been great to have you here and hear a bit about your background and, and you know, your origins, where you're from, what brought you to New Zealand, and now the work that you're doing today. So thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, Stephen. It's been a pleasure. I do hope you enjoyed that interview with Mitchell. I know for me there were several things that stood out. And if this subject interests you, then check out the paper that we co-wrote called The Driverless Revolution, What Next? It's a really cool overview of some of the key points that we talk about in this interview. But it goes into a lot more depth as well in terms of what the regulations might be needed to change the legal environment for autonomous vehicles to become more accepted. If you enjoyed this interview, then check out some of the more than 230 in the back catalog. Until next time.